0: Hello and welcome to the PhD Life Raft podcast. I'm Emma Brzezinski and today I am talking to the wonderful Alan Kilner-Johnson. Alan is an accredited mindfulness teacher with a wealth of experience in meditation practices. And today, we're talking about how mindfulness and meditation can support you on your PhD journey. And we're also talking about how your PhD process may actually help you to become more of the person you want to become. So, I do hope you enjoy this episode. Good morning, Ellen.
1: Hi Emma, how are you?
0: I am all right. Thank you so much for being here on a grey Monday morning. Um, I have been very much looking forward to talking to you. And we were put in touch because we're both doing some work on the Techne program, and we were put in touch with each other. And I am so glad we have been because your work just looks totally gorgeous and now I've got the opportunity to quiz you more about it so thank you for being here thank you for saying yes.
1: Well, likewise it's an absolute pleasure to meet you and I, I very much admire the work that you're doing as well so it's, it's really wonderful to be able to have this chat today. Bless you thank you and so we're
0: going to talk a lot about mindfulness today um, but we always begin with people talking about their own journey through and how, so your journey through um, graduate study and then how you got to where you are today. So tell us a little bit about that.
1: Absolutely. It's, it's been an interesting long tale, and uh, I've recently come up on a, a massive anniversary. Uh, last oh, wow. week it was the 10th anniversary of submitting my doctoral thesis.
0: Whoa, hey. I, I we need to celebrate that moment <laughs> yes. to celebrate.
1: And I, I remember that day so vividly. Right. And, and as I tell my PhD students now, you never really know when to celebrate finishing the PhD. You sort of celebrate when you hand it in, celebrate the vibe, you celebrate a graduation. So I say celebrate all of those. All of those. <laughs> 10 years since I submitted my PhD. Wow. And an interesting journey that got me there in the first place. Because I'm I'm American, you can probably tell from my accent. And I did my undergraduate degree in America, but moved to the UK to do my master's. I specialize in British literature, so I wanted to come to the source to do it here. So I did my master's at Leeds and then went straight on to a PhD after that. And it was, it was an interesting road during the PhD because as an international student, I wasn't eligible for any um, studentships that included stipends and living fees. Right. So I was I was working throughout. I was teaching a lot at the university. I had lots of little side gigs and side hustles. I was working part-time for an online American company um, as well. So, so I kept myself busy during the PhD. And when I finished the PhD 10 years ago, um, very, very recently, I was entering into a, a job market that didn't seem especially excited to, to have new academics on board. There's been a, a new big government review that changed some of the structures around fee levels at universities. And there was a little bit of a hiring freeze going on, but I I, I recognized that there were some other ways in which I would be able to work with my research. So I spent a year after my Viva and after passing working in a number of different industries, really. I worked as a a house editor, editor at Thomson Reuters. I worked as a creative account manager at an advertising agency. I worked as an English as a foreign language teacher. So three completely different sectors all within one year. And for, for somebody coming from an English literature background, they were all the, the kind of uh, industrial areas that somebody with my my degree might go into, the kinds of places where you can really provide value with an English PhD. And I found that year profoundly transformative because I really began to realize where the value lied in the research that I was doing and why why it was the academic space that I, that I ultimately wanted to work in. There was a lot of uncertainty that year. There was a huge amount of precarity. There was a huge amount of soul searching. There was a huge amount of sadness and depression and disappointment, which I'm sure that, that many listeners will be mm. acquainted with. Mm. And then I ultimately, at the end of that year, a job at a university in Hong Kong. I, it was a 10-year track role in English literature. And, and I went to Hong Kong for three years. And and you know, in many ways, my all of the dreams that I had for the academic life, for being the, the full-time permanent lecturer and doing my teaching and doing my research, all of those dreams had come true on the surface. Hmm. But then I began to feel a little bit of that that missing element missing something that I had in the year before when I was doing other things outside of academia things that felt very truthful and very honest and very connected to who I was. And it was through that process that I spent a lot of time in in Hong Kong, in Thailand, in um, Bali and Indonesia, learning different traditional forms of yoga, and meditation. And it was really during my time working in Hong Kong that I began to develop a a serious daily mindfulness practice, something that had been with me for a while and sort of an on and off type basis had now become a really quite serious daily practice. And in Hong Kong, I was able to get some research done. I got a book out. And ultimately after several years, I found myself in a, a position at the University of Surrey where I've been for for the past few years, and when I when I tell my my PhD students about my journey, I, I remind them that every single journey through the PhD, both getting to the point, then going through the course of the PhD and completing, and then the years and decades that follow it, it's a completely different story for everyone. Everyone has their own unique story, so I never I never present my story as the the, the the right story or mm. anything except just simply one of the ways in which you can leave academia for a bit of time, go into industry for a bit of time, learn a huge amount and bring that information back with you into academia.
0: Mm. Absolutely. I mean I think thank you so much for sharing your story because I know that people really value Knowing that other people have been on this journey, or similar journeys, and that sense of being, a, knowing that you can get through to the other side, that there are way that you will find your way through, and as you say, everybody will find their way through in a different way, but there are ways through. People have experienced that kind of the the, the crisis, this really deep, you're talking about that pain and soul searching, um, and then have come come out the other side and and found. A place to be um so thank you for that thank you for bringing a bit of barley here i'm i'm gonna I'm gonna enjoy this very much um because we are gonna we're gonna talk a bit more now about that practice that you started to um develop in in that time we we i'm just aware that people might have heard of mindfulness but not really know what that means or how it might be applicable to them. So could you just tell us a little bit about what mindfulness is, what it isn't (laughs) um, and how it might be useful to PhD students?
1: Yes absolutely it's it's certainly one of those big buzzwords around at the moment and it's the the type of thing that we hear quite a lot about but don't always necessarily know what it means Hmm. and of course it can be defined in many different ways but I, I draw upon a definition from the American scientist John Kabat-Zinn, who defines mindfulness as the awareness of the present moment without judgment. So it's, it's as simple as that. To have a mindful awareness is to simply be aware of the moment that we are in now, this single, solitary, simple moment, and not to ascribe any type of value judgments to it not trying to say that this is good, this is bad, this feels good, this feels painful. And thats it's not really something that that happens just once. It's not a goal that we're working toward. And when we practice mindfulness, we're not trying to ascend to some sort of great, elevated grand master state. It's really about being able to bring that that awareness and that non-judgmental connection to the present moment, into our everyday lives. And I know I've mentioned a few times already, I've talked about my practice of mindfulness. And I think that that word practice is is really crucial in talking about mindfulness because it isn't an objective. It isn't an endpoint. It's something that we we practice most regularly. And actually, Emma, I have a really, really good little exercise I I can share with everyone just to sort of demonstrate what mindfulness is. Should we oh yes 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 okay fantastic um so in mindfulness we use things called anchors Um, an anchor in a mindfulness meditation might be the breath it might be a series of words it might be a visualization but when we connect with our anchor we just continuously go back to that whenever we notice our mind beginning to wander so what i'll introduce now is a very very brief anchor just a few words and those words are as i breathe in i breathe in as I breathe out, I breathe out. So on the in-breath, just silently to yourself, affirming as I breathe in, I breathe in, as I breathe out, I breathe out. And then as you keep repeating that silently in your mind, it serves as an anchor to ground you in that present moment, to ground you in that sense of connection to the mindful now that John Kabat-Zinn talks about. But our minds, are really, really good at rushing ahead to other things. So as everyone right now keeps repeating, as I breathe in, I breathe in, as I breathe out, I breathe out, their minds will be rushing to what they've had for breakfast, what's on their to-do list today, maybe a, a comment that they got from their supervisor last week. When our mind begins to wander in that way, it's not a problem. All we do is gently guide it back to our anchor. We notice when our mind begins to wander, And then we take it back to those words, as I breathe in, I breathe in, as I breathe out, I breathe out. And that, in its most basic form, is what mindfulness is all about, learning how to connect to that state. And coming back to it time and time again, the practice of mindfulness is when you return your attention to that anchor. It's not about getting rid of thoughts. It's not about getting rid of emotions. It's about being able to be aware of your emotions and being aware of when your thoughts change course and just gently guiding them back to that anchor at the present.
0: Oh, I love it. And I think it's that sense of relief, isn't it? That sense of relief of just coming into the moment. Um, and thank you so much for sharing that exercise because it gives a really practical example of that. Because I do think people think, oh, mindfulness is another thing to do. I'll put it yeah. on my list. And actually that sense of it, this state of being, which again is another buzzword, but kind of being in that where there isn't anything else to do, but to be can be so refreshing and supportive and as I say just I have this real sense of just relief nothing yes. else to think about nothing else to do just be in the moment
1: absolutely. <sighs> absolutely very oftentimes when I'm leading guided meditations I use the phrase you are safe right now in yes. this moment yes and I think that's what what mindfulness helps us connect to and, and I think you
0: might- sorry. Well, I was just going to say, I think at this moment as well, that's so important because we are all hyper aroused. We are looking, you know, we are looking for danger. We're on alert, high alert because of the situation we're finding ourselves in at the moment. So this this sense of reminding ourselves that we are safe is really such a gift.
1: Oh gosh, absolutely. The the challenges that the entire world has faced over the past year have really truly been unprecedented. Mm. And the way in which we've had to so quickly learn how to, to adapt to new ways of living, to new ways of working. And as I've said to PhD students at my university several times, there's no good time for a global pandemic to hit. But coming during the, the course of a PhD program seems to be a particularly mm-hmm. bad time for that to come. Mm-hmm. So it does, the challenges of the past year requires a new type of resilience. It requires a new type of, of connection to the, that feeling of, of safety within one's own core values. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've seen so many instances over the past year of profound challenges faced by PhD researchers whose research has been has been completely reshaped by the mm-hmm. pandemic. But I've also seen many examples of PhD researchers who have found the opportunity to to think about their research in new ways, to really look at why they're doing this work in the first place. And I think it's that type of contemplative aspect of our work as academics that's so important, but not something that we're taught in the academy. I'm thinking back to my PhD training. I was certainly never taught to think about why are you doing a PhD? What What are the values standing behind this? What type of being do you hope to become through doing this? But I think those questions are so crucial because the challenges faced during a PhD program, and the research undertaken during a PhD are are immense. I, I love that question. I'm
0: just writing it down. What type of being do you want to become? I've just, this is gorgeous. And I think really links, I was just talking to someone else for the podcast on reflective journaling and I think it would sit really well with that for people in terms of a practice as you say we're not encouraged necessarily to do that within the academy It's kind of what's next what's next what's next what's you know kind of critical analysis that's what we're doing this is what we're all about but actually to to sit and reflect that's where wisdom comes, right? <laughs> That's where the real wisdom is.
1: Absolutely. That's in- entirely right. It's because as academics, we're being trained in a really, really extraordinary way. You know, to, to undertake a PhD is to completely break apart your understanding of a subject and then build it from the ground up mm. so that that subject knowledge isn't something external to you. Undertaking PhD research is bringing your subject and discipline-specific knowledge into your body and fully embodying that so that's always going to be a really really challenging process but there absolutely does need to be that element of of reflection upon it when i teach mindfulness I, i distinguish between what i call formal mindfulness and informal mindfulness so formal mindfulness refers to the seated closed eye meditations drawing upon an anchor like that brief example yes. that we worked with earlier and of course there are great apps out there headspace insight timer many free guided meditations on on youtube as well of course but perhaps even more importantly it's the informal mindfulness practice where we take that awareness of the now into our everyday because our formal seated closed eye meditation trains us and builds up the muscles that enable us to take that sense of awareness with us into the challenges of our lives. And just reflecting on meetings I had with my supervisor and I was a PhD student, I would be frustrated and upset and, you know, I I would get feedback or comments and I wouldn't necessarily know what to do with them. There'd be all these really powerful emotions. Mm -hmm. But then I didn't have that sense of the informal mindfulness to just take that moment now and question how I'm feeling, not judging it, Mm. not ascribing value to that feeling, the moment, just being aware of it. Mm. And sometimes just being aware of that feeling is a crucial first step.
0: Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Yes. And that sense of it being a very emotional process, but you don't have to act on it in that way. You can just go that spirit of curiosity, spirit of um, awareness which again, it just allows you some space, allows you to breathe.
1: Absolutely. Oh, I love
0: it. I love it. Um, so I'm going to ask <laughs> ask very unfairly, as I do everybody, in terms of are there any kind of top tips for people? So we have this uh, this sense of mindfulness as as the awareness of the present moment without judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also have this sense of how that might be useful for PhD students because of the particular mindset they may find themselves in, the particular moment they may find themselves in just now. And we've, you've given us one brilliant example of practice already. Any other golden thoughts um, for us?
1: Sure. Oh, I love a golden thought. I always have a few golden thoughts. <laughs> uh, um, I, three of them, if if I boil it down. The first one would be investigate ways that you can bring a, a formal mindfulness practice into your life. And that's the closed eye seated meditation. Again, great apps like Headspace, Insight Timer. I'm a teacher on Insight Timers. You can search for me there. And remembering that mindfulness isn't an instrumentalist tool. It's not something that we do just to to make us better as academics. We don't see the results immediately in that sort of way. They're much subtler. But the research actually does show that a regular seated closed eye formal mindfulness practice can decrease negative experiences such as fear, distrust, discontent, worry, anxiety, and depression. It can increase positive experiences such as joyfulness, contentment, compassion, and it can also um, build upon a number of the key cognitive functions that we as researchers need, things such as being able to make connections between ideas. So my number one top tip is find a way to begin to integrate a daily mindfulness practice into your life in whatever way is best for you. But the two other ones are going to, the two other top tips are going to be a little bit easier to take on right now because they are tips about informal mindfulness practice, the things that we can take into our daily lives. The first of them is called box breathing. And box breathing, really simply, is breathing in for a count of four, holding for a count of four, breathing out for a count of four holding for a count of four. So you can imagine like a box forming with each of the four parts of the breath being of equal length. Box breathing is absolutely invaluable to use in those moments when our minds begin to run away from us. So I'm thinking about perhaps for instance, before you present at a conference, before you go into a seminar room to teach, before you have a supervisor meeting, perhaps you get feedback from a a journal editor. Maybe it's good, maybe it's bad, but the emotions will be strong nevertheless. So find the opportunity for yourself just to connect to that box breathing for the moment, just to regulate and stabilize everything that's going on in your mind. If that's all that you do, in moments of extreme emotion, that is going to put you in a really, really good position for approaching that experience with a a resilient, mindful attitude. And the final top tip is sort of grows from that. And it's saying hello to our emotions. Because we as academics, as, as I've mentioned already, we're trained to be very mind identified. That's the whole point of the work that we do we are working with our minds in such a way that we're able to create new knowledge. That's an extraordinary alchemical type of task. And because of the the stage that we are in the the modern late capitalist era, we're constantly told that the the somatic experience, so experiences within the body, um, feelings within the body, sensations within the body, that that carries less significance or less weight than thoughts and ideations in the mind. I don't think that that's the case at all. That there's a a value judgment that one is better than the other. I think they can both absolutely exist. And I think that offering the reminder to us as researchers and academics to be aware of those emotions, those somatic experiences in our body, is so crucial. So let's think. Then you've had a challenging situation, maybe a um, a, a question at a conference that took you off guard and left you feeling a bit upset. You can begin with that box breathing, just to recenter, refocus. And once you've found that, that brief moment of focus, just ask yourself, what am I feeling in my body right now? It might be upset. It might be sadness. It might be rage. It might be anger. When you notice that emotion, don't judge it. Don't say that I'm not meant to feel sad or I'm not meant to feel angry right now because these emotions are absolutely a part of the human experience. Instead, just acknowledge it and say hello to it. Hello, I am angry right now. Saying it to yourself privately, of course. But just being able to acknowledge how you feel within your body at the moment is an absolutely profoundly transformative informal mindfulness practice technique that can serve us really well through all of the many different types of challenges that we experience as PhD researchers.
0: I love that because it just welcomes the whole self, <laughs> the Absolutely. sense of being fully there, all of you, your mind, your body, your soul, it's, it's, all, it's all there and welcome. Thank you so, so much for this. I I know that this is going to be so useful for people and I have a real sense that people are going to want to find out more about this. Um, and if they do, you've already mentioned some apps that people m- might find useful. We will put the links to those in the show notes. Also the links to your own work because you have fantastic programs that you offer um, and people I'm sure we'll want to find out more about that. And so you can find those out in the show notes and also don't forget to sign up for the newsletter because we always put some extra information in um, there too. Thank you, Alan. Um, You're awesome. And uh, thank you for doing this work because it is revolutionary.
1: (laughs) Uh, Thank Thank you so, so much. And everything that you just said about me, I think is absolutely a reflection of you as well. And uh, if I just share one brief thing in closing, I know that you and I were reflecting before we began recording on challenges that we faced during yes. our PhD, recognizing that a PhD is always going to be a challenging experience. Nobody can remove the challenges of it. Yes. However, you and I both recognize that many of the challenges that we faced didn't need to be like that, no. and that the the new upcoming generation of academics so that's now you and I generation that we have the opportunity to to make things different for the new generation and my closing comment would just be that invitation to everyone listening now who's going to be the next generation of academics who would be able to continue the process of contributing to new knowledge but recognizing that we aren't cogs in some sort of intellectual machine that we're living breathing humans who are doing extraordinary things And are very much contributing to our society with the creation of new knowledge and we need a lot of support to help us to really really fulfill that purpose. I love that. Thank you.
0: Thank you and uh, yes you people out there um you are you're going to change things I know it and I'm excited about it um Well, thank you for being here, Alan. Thank you for listening, everyone. And um, we'll see you next time.
1: Thanks so much, Alan.